Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are very excited to have Dr. Mary O'Connor today. She wrote a book with Conwall Hawk. It is called Taking Care of You. We thoroughly enjoyed reading it. We're huge believers in the importance of gaining information and sharing it with others. And of course, we believe that knowledge is power. And that really, we want to empower you to be your own best advocate. Y'all have certainly done that. So I first learned about this book last year at the Tory Burch Conference. And so here we are a year later, and we're having you on our podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Excited to be here and share information about this book that Conwall and I wrote to really empower women uh, to be able to be more effective advocates for their own health. Yes, which is so important because if you don't know, then how are you to know to even seek out a medical expert and things like that? So let's start by why did you write the book? How did this come to be, you and Conwall? Well, I began an interest in this topic as um, a woman orthopedic surgeon. So there aren't that many women that are orthopedic surgeons. Mm -hmm. And from my own experience of seeing and taking care of a lot of women, I recognized that they were not receiving the same quality of care. And then when you pull in race, ethnicity, so... African-American women, Latina women, right? It's just, it, it gets worse and worse. And in my own experience, I would find women that would come in that hadn't been listened to. It's like the doctor didn't want to hear their voice. And it was just so frustrating to me. So I realized that one way to try and help a broader audience of women than just those that I personally interact with was to create this book. And Conwall and I intersected when I was at Yale and she is a medical anthropologist. So we said, Hey, let's write a book. And we invited 111 other women contributors, physicians, um, nurse practitioner, licensed clinical social worker, PhDs, you know, across the spectrum that would be involved in teams to help support women. And we created the book and then we got Mayo Clinic Press to, to publish it. So that's the story. It's really remarkable. It's the definitive. It is. I mean, every person that you have in the book has such impressive credentials as, as do you two. And the other day I was watching the Today Show and they were talking about, it was a female doctor and she was talking about the signs that go along with a heart attack. And my mother has had several heart attacks. So I know what the signs are for women and I know how different they are from the signs for men. And this female doctor did not bring that up. She gave the, you know, the typical signals that you might be having a heart attack for a man. And I I really was stunned. I was so frustrated. So I wanted to ask you to, to, to discuss a little bit about the lack of studies done specifically for women. So this continues to be a real issue in medicine. Several years ago, there was legislation passed by Congress that basically directed the National Institutes of Health to include women in research trials. Now, historically, women have been excluded because the medical community has said the following. Well, maybe she's pregnant. And so you can't, I mean, research on pregnant women is extremely difficult and Mm. you have to have a really good reason to be doing that, right? Because there's, there's the woman and, and the baby. Sure. Uh, The second is that women have hormone cycles. (laughs) Hello. Right. right, You know, uh, and would the fluctuating levels of hormones impact that clinical study? Mm. So these, have been the two reasons, Mm -hmm. the latter of which the hormone excuse is, of course, to my mind, ridiculous. Of course. Because when these medications come out on the market, and I'm speaking mostly about uh, medications and drug trials, we have found that almost all of the aftermarket medications that are pulled off the shelf are because of adverse effects in women. 
Wow. Let me just say that again, because it's really important, right? What we found is because there's inadequate research on how women metabolize medications and the research is too focused on males Mm -hmm. and men, that when a drug goes through this extensive process, which of course is extremely expensive and it comes out and doctors are prescribing it and women are taking it only then are people understanding that they're, that this drug isn't working well in women and to pull a drug off the market is a really big deal. So we have more work to do to get basic research and drug research focused on clinical trials that embrace and welcome women, not just men. It seems like it would be a monetary benefit for these drug brands. They're going to have to go spend all that money and then they'll have to take it off the shelf. So it seems like they would want more women, but maybe they they just think it's going to be more complicated. Well, they feel it will be more complicated and still the risk of that happening is still low. The bar to remove a drug from the market, right? The adverse effects have to be clear, right? You know, like really solid that, oh my goodness, this drug is hurting women. Let's pull it off the market. Right. So there's all kinds of uh, historic discrimination, basically, against women. And, you know, that also comes down to the medical workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, While there's a lot more parity in um, non-surgical fields, there's still a lot of underrepresentation of women in some of the very historically Mm -hmm. and (laughs) continued male-dominant uh, fields and surgeries, such as my own orthopedic exactly. surgery. Right. I'm sure as male doctors and everyone thinks that's for sports and that's a man's field and all of those things. So we're just so honored to have you on the podcast. No, Allison, it's really my pleasure. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sure hopefully maybe never anyone has had an experience like this, but maybe everyone has. Like when you go to the doctor and you're saying, oh, I'm having this symptom and this symptom and this symptom, and it's a male. And then they look at you and and the things that they say to you are just insane. I mean, it's just so frustrating. Tell her what happened to you, Dee. So there's something and still, I hate medical mysteries. Mom and I joke about it, but it's like so ridiculous when people can't figure something out. I'm a very clean eater. So if I eat something, I don't know what it is, but then the next day I have a really terrible migraine and upset stomach. And so I'm trying to be proactive about it. And I scheduled a doctor's appointment and started to explain all of that. And then he's like, have you had a history of eating disorders? And I'm like, oh my I'm sorry. <laughs> what about what I just said? leads you to think that I have an eating disorder. And then I get so frustrated that then I started tearing up and crying. And then he's like, why are you so emotional? Is, oh everything, my God. is everything okay? I mean, in your life? Classic? This is classic. I'm, is so, classic. I'm, so, I'm so sorry you had that experience. I'm grateful that you shared it because it is classic where the woman is not listened to. I don't know another way to right. say it except her voice is not heard. It's like the information that she's providing is somehow not credible. Right. And the woman is not to be believed in what she's saying, right. which is craziness. It is so crazy. And if you look at Delia, if you took the time to look at her, she doesn't look like someone that does have an eating disorder. She's not terribly thin. The whole thing was... Thanks, Mom. <laughs> No, no, Dee, I'm saying, no, a good doctor looks at everything. Exactly. So so anyway, I'm sure many women would hear that and be like, oh, my gosh, I definitely had that as well. And still, Dr. Mary, no one has told me what ingredient it is that is some like man-made ingredient that I will avoid migraines at all costs. It's like if I eat some sort of cookie or something. So there's some ingredient. But anyway, maybe one day someone will tell me, maybe not. I hope so. So it seems like diet, sleep, handling stress, and exercise are the keys to staying healthy and avoiding so many of the health issues that you include in the book. This seems simple, but why do you think this is challenging to achieve for women? 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. And let's just call out first that women are always doing multiple jobs and that the the responsibilities and workload at home is unequal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and and the data, there's lots of data that shows that even with families where both parents are college educated mm-hmm. and are both working at mm-hmm. what, we, what someone would consider a, a pretty high level job, there's more burden of childcare, you know, house work that falls to the woman. And so women are more stressed. Plus, let's talk about older parents. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's it are because the daughters are the ones who disproportionately are taking care of older mom and dad. Absolutely. So you're just women are getting it from all sides. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I always try to frame it as what a privilege it is that we can take care of our parents. Aren't we blessed to have children if you chose to have children, right? I mean, not having children isn't right for everybody. And isn't that wonderful? But at the same time, we need to recognize that we still have to do self-care. And that's hard. It's really hard when women have so much on their plate. Yes, and they feel guilty for taking time for themselves. Yes, and and that's... I'm still learning. You know, I'm hopeful that the listeners on this podcast, if there's someone out there yes. feeling guilty, that they recognize they need to just erase that feeling. Discard it. Yes, yes. You shouldn't yes. feel guilty right. because if you are, if you're sick and you're not okay, you cannot help anyone. Hey, so, it's not logical. I have signs not logical. All, right. I put signs all over my apartment now that say no stress allowed. <laughs> because you do feel guilty when you are doing, you know, it's just so complicated. But anyway. Been- the other point I want to make here is how important it is for parents to be role models for their children. Mm-hmm. So if mom and dad are not active, if they're sedentary, if they're not mm-hmm. focused on at least some type of mindful eating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not recognizing the importance of sleep, if they're not addressing stress in some way mm-hmm. and saying, you know, we have to take, take a step back, look at all our blessings, let's be grateful, right? If they're not modeling these behaviors, then we can't expect our children to do it. It's so important for mothers. I'll share a story because I think it really illustrates this. So I chair a national nonprofit group called Movement is Life, and we're focused on health equity. Mm -hmm. And we have a community-based program called Operation Change, which we've run in in multiple cities across the country. Fantastic outcomes, all uh, focused on education, motivational interviewing, and creating a community of women to support each other. But the story is, so we will have nutrition educational sessions and the groups of women that we have, we will create based on race, ethnicity because of the cultural alignment. So this story involves a Latina group. Mm -hmm. And so in the nutrition classes, the focus was on cooking healthy dishes that are culturally aligned with what what those women culturally would eat. So one woman goes home and she starts making a healthy dish for herself while she's cooking dinner for her husband and her children. And her husband makes fun of her. Like, why are you making that? And she, God bless her. She doesn't listen to him. And she says, I made this for me. Like, you don't have to eat it. Right. And she's made all the regular food for him and the children. Mm -hmm. She starts eating that healthy dish. Next thing you know, she keeps making healthy dishes. The children start eating the healthy dish. And then the husband starts eating the healthy dish. This is the power of one person in a household, which is stereotypically the mom, but that's our reality, to help not just impact her health, but the health of her entire family. And that's 
one way we start changing health in communities. Women are the key. I'm not letting men off the hook here. Okay. I'm not saying that they, they shouldn't be actively involved, but you know, we have to start someplace. So um, we have started with the focus on women for our community-based program. That's wonderful because it's hard to, obviously when you're tired and when you have a budget to eat healthy, and especially when you have to take the time to cook yourself something and then everyone else something. Allison, I never realized for years this issue of food insecurity. Most people are aware, a lot of the people are aware that there's so-called food deserts in underserved communities where they have very limited access to fresh fruit and vegetables. The other thing that's important to recognize is that in those grocery stores, the fresh fruit and vegetables cost more than they do in my grocery store Oh, in my more affluent neighborhood. Wow. What is that about? Okay. So this is like the double whammy. So obviously that's, there's the importance of policy and calling on businesses to help support healthier eating in all communities. If there's one thing we should have learned, if there's one thing we should have learned during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. it's that no one is isolated from anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so we are only going to end up being as healthy as our least healthy community. Yes. That's so important. I'm just blown away at what you just said. That's just so unfair. No, unfortunate. But anyway, we're all trying and you all are certainly doing so much to help everyone. Well, I want to switch gears and ask you about how you feel about personalized medicine. I think personalized medicine has a huge future. I mean, I think the the work that's being done now in the personalized medicine space is super exciting. And I'll just give a couple examples. So cancer treatment has been radically changed by understanding the genetics of the tumor Mm -hmm. and allowing and then tailoring the chemotherapy drugs Mm -hmm. that will be more effective. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. Another example is the growing field of pharmacogenetics, where basically you can understand what medications will work for an individual and what won't. Wow. And as the cost of whole gene sequencing goes down, the whole genome, your entire genome now can be sequenced for about 400 bucks. That's it. $400. Now, however, $400 $400 is an awful lot of money sure. for someone on a fixed income sure. or, or just sure. trying to scrape by. So I don't, I don't say that. Um, I say, I try to put that in context, sure. but nonetheless, what used to cost thousands of dollars, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars is what I read that it costs for Steve job to have his tumor sequenced when he had cancer. Like he did all of this, Years ago, right? So as the cost of this comes down, we'll be able to apply it more effectively in medicine, and it will be super helpful. We, I think, forget a little bit that biology is still biology, Mm -hmm. and everyone has a sex, and that sex is very influential in terms of all of the biologic processes in your body. That was one of the points that we tried to make with the book when we looked at different common clinical conditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, each chapter talked about, well, why does this matter to women? And how how is it different for women? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that was just uh, even surprised me, Allison, was how common it was that there were differences in diseases men compared to women. Or I should say males compared to females. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so really understanding that there is still this big driving force of biology is critical. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I'll make one more point, because I could go on about this for a long right. time. It's not just about testosterone and estrogen, because sex influences all kinds of other biological processes in our body. And we have to get away from thinking that women's health is about the bikini issues, the term uh, we use in medicine, right? Because 
people think about women's health and it's breast health and reproductive health. And that's incorrect. Very, very interesting. That really is so interesting. And yesterday when I went back for my six-week checkup after post-surgery, they had done a test to see the specific type of tumor that I had. Would it be high risk, low risk, or medium risk if it came back? And so they said it'd be a couple months. But when I went back yesterday, she said, we got the results back and you are low risk. And also, if it ever does come back, we know the exact medicine to use exactly. on that. So you I mean, just blew me away. You just experienced personalized medicine. Ah, oh, I love it. Right? Because basically they took your tumor that they resected, right? When you had the surgery. Right. And then they analyzed that so they could understand the makeup of that tumor on a cellular level and then identify drugs that would kill it based on its biologic profile. That is personalized medicine. And like I said, it's happening now, particularly in cancer treatments, Mm -hmm. but we need to extend it more broadly. I'm hoping they want me to do genetic testing for Delia, but now they can test for so many things. And my hope is that soon Every person, you know, once a year or once in their life is allowed to have genetic testing, you know, that people can really understand, you know, what their makeup is or, you know, however you even say that. But so that everyone can have more information about their own bodies. But you only need to have it tested once because it it won't change. Oh, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so so if you think about it, it's a good investment. However, right. I, I would say that the oh, application sure. of the knowledge is still a work in progress, right? The most right. progress I would say that has been made is along the, the cancer line, which is yeah. specifically looking at the genetics of the cancer, not necessarily your genetics, although, for example, in women with breast cancer, women will will commonly be tested to see if they have a certain gene, BRAC2 gene, that puts puts them at higher risk. So all of this is evolving. It's a very exciting field of medicine. And we need to make sure that women continue to be well represented in this work. And the thing with the genetic testing, she said, if it shows you have a predisposition to colon cancer, for example, then you would be getting all all that would mean would you be getting a colonoscopy every year instead of every 10 years so you know as we've said knowledge is power but we could talk about this all day i know tell us a little bit about the book and you know i mean i know you could talk about that all day too but how it works like let's say it is an orthopedic issue what does this book do to help women with specific issues and medical problems so we created the book with three sections And the first part is called Women and the Current Health Landscape. So we talk about the role of social determinants in women's health and challenges uh, faced particularly by women of color and special considerations for sexual and gender minority women. You know, is Google your first responder? How do you find the right clinician, shared decision-making, telemedicine, things like that. Then the second part of the book, which is the largest part of the book, focuses on 55 common clinical conditions that are are not dominated by the bikini medicine areas. So for example, we talk about, we have a chapter on blood clots and constipation, dementia, diabetes, fibromyalgia, you know, high blood pressure. And of course, because I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I made sure that we put some common orthopedic conditions in like low back pain and a torn anterior cruciate ligament, et cetera. Each of those clinical chapters in the same structured format where we say, okay, what is this disease? How is it diagnosed? Can it be prevented? How is it treated? How does it impact women? Why does it matter to women? Questions to ask your healthcare team And then my favorite part is the pearls of wisdom uh, from the contributors. 
which was really us asking these experts, okay, what would you want to tell a woman? Let's just put it out there. Give us some pearls of wisdom. And then the final section is taking care of you, where we talk about sleep and physical activity and mindfulness, acupuncture, personalized medicine. You know, each of us can be a health promoter for our own selves and our families and our communities. And that's the book. I just love the book. I was thinking, I picture myself taking notes and folding down pages and everything I did when I read this book. I read it probably in three days and it's a huge book, (laughs) but I was just so interested and fascinated. I'm so glad that it is this manual because I feel like Dr. Google can really get people into trouble. Dr. Google is not a doctor. I'm just saying that people go to Google like mom and then they Google things and then they say, oh, this is normal, and then they don't end up telling their doctor, and then that's not good. So I'm glad my next question was going to be, if a woman is experiencing a symptom, what steps do you recommend that she take to investigate? And please avoid Dr. Google. So that is great that that is the first part of the book. Yes, I'll comment. You know, Dr. Google is good and bad because there are very high-quality resources out there. And such as Mayo Clinic website or Johns Hopkins. Okay. So there are places you can go and be confident that the medical information that you're getting is correct and appropriate. Okay. That is still not a substitute for a woman going and seeing her doctor to say, I have a concern or I have a problem. However, It is perfectly okay for that woman to be trying to understand and learn about what's going on with her, right? Which is the reason why we wrote the book, to give women in easy to understand language. So there's not a lot of medical jargon in the book. Let's talk about this condition because these conditions affect so many women or they affect our parents, right? Because remember, we're taking care of our older mom and right. You know, older dad. So it's okay to go research things. And quite honestly, every patient comes in with a self-diagnosis. And I would teach this to the medical students and residents and fellows when I was teaching them, because I'm like, everybody comes in and somewhere in their head, they have an idea of what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. They may have no medical knowledge, but they're thinking, maybe I've got hip pain and it's really cancer. Because, you know, my mom died of cancer and she had hip pain. You need to discover that. Otherwise, that patient leaves still thinking, maybe I have cancer and Dr. O'Connor just missed it or she's not even thinking about it, right? So it's really important to try and understand what the patient is thinking is wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And to reassure them, and, you know, for example, in that situation to say, your x-rays show some arthritis, there's nothing that looks like any kind of tumor or cancer. And if you're not improving with the treatment that we're, you know, that we're going to mm-hmm. recommend, then maybe we'll do some other tests in the future. But right now, you know, it's just some early arthritis. I'd like you to lose some weight increase your level of physical activity, you know, get on an anti-inflammatory diet, all of the things that are going to help that. Mm-hmm. But if that woman has come in and in the back of her head thinks, oh my God, I really have cancer in my hip, mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed. I learned from the book also to use, when I do Google, which I do frequently, you suggested something that ends with .org or .edu. Cleveland Clinic pops up a lot and the National Health Organization. I think you recommended that. But like you said, too, sometimes those are a little bit above most people's heads. Yeah, it's important to find the website that is going to be written in non-medical jargon so that you can understand. And, you know, Allison, I don't say that in any derogatory way because, you know, if I have to look at engineering material, Mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Like, like, this is like a language I just, um, I'm not familiar with reading legal documents. Like, I think that the lawyers 
purposefully trying to make <laughs> the words and language that they use so challenging just to help, you know, preserve their jobs and their and their activities. I agree. So, Dr. Mary, will you talk to us about the idea that medicine is leaning into an emphasis on preventative rather than reactive? This is so exciting. Well, I would like to believe that that is true, but I'll be <laughs> I'll run huh. a parade because it's not happening. Oh, no. It's just not happening. And it needs to happen. But I actually have a different way of looking at this because I think that sick care belongs in the doctor's office, but health and wellness care belongs in the community. Doctors are not traditionally trained on wellness. Now, we know the things that matter, sleep, nutrition, activity, okay? But doctors are not trained to help people overcome behavioral issues that are keeping them from leading healthier lives. Doctors don't have control over whether your neighborhood is healthy and you can go out for a walk at night, whether the neighborhood is safe or whether you live in a food desert, all these social determinants of health that impact women and their ability to be healthy and to raise healthy children. Mm -hmm. So I really think that the focus as a, a nation needs to be on looking at communities as the source of health and wellness and leaving the sick care to the doctors. That makes perfect sense. That really, <laughs> it does. I mean, I never thought about it that way, but it makes perfect sense. Well, that's a big mind. You know, it's a big uh, yeah. kind of shift. Right. Because honestly, we can't afford to pay doctors, nurse practitioners to be doing health coaching and kind of the behavioral health changes that people need to adopt healthier lifestyles, mm-hmm. nor are they trained to do that. Let's look at that as a separate scope of work mm-hmm. and say, how do we get that in communities mm-hmm. and get people engaged in communities? I'll share one of the things that I learned in my, in my journey with our community program that Movement is Life uh, runs called Operation Change. So it's an 18-week program, and we'll have 50 women at a time, and they meet once a week for three hours, and the first hour is education on a topic like nutrition or arthritis or stress. Mm -hmm. The second hour is movement, and the third hour is motivational interviewing. And all the women have knee pain because our, our focus at Movement is Life is on movement and getting people to move because that's uh, so important, not just for their joint health, right, but for their overall health. Yeah. So we surveyed uh, the women because we have seen remarkable results, 18% improvement in their walking speed. Now, mind you, these are all women with knee pain, and we're not, nobody's given any drugs or injections or procedures, a 69% wow. improvement in their sense of hopelessness because so many are depressed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we surveyed them to say, what do you like about the program? And I thought the difference would be uh, the motivational interviewing, because that was really the thing that we were adding that was different, right? Mm -hmm. They could get education online, you know, they could do movement classes or just try and be more mindful of movement. But that wasn't what we learned. Here's what we learned. We learned that it was creating a community for them, pulling these women together so that they could support each other in their behavioral health change was what was essential. That was just, I was like, duh, of course. Why wouldn't I have thought of that or seen that before? If you, right? Like we are social creatures. We need the support people to help us and encourage us. I think especially as women, because of what you said earlier, all the bones that we have in the air just to be with other women and even commiserate. I mean, you know, and that's just remarkable. And to try and hold each other accountable. You know, that was one reason Mm -hmm. why I did the book with Conwall. I was like, I've been thinking about this for a while, but you know, 
I'm not going to do it on my own. It would be much, first of all, it would be a lot more fun to do it with someone else. Mm-hmm. Secondly, if we do it together, we will hold each other accountable. Well, we're so glad you did. We, <laughs> we really, really are. I feel like we live in a world that's selfish. I mean, we're we're not living in a communal world. I don't know when that changed, if that hasn't been the case since the 1960s or what it is, but my hope for the world is that we do move back if possible, into a more communal world where we're really looking out for each other and things like that, because I feel like so many of our issues could be maybe alleviated or solved if we were really speaking to each other. Correct. We need more connection, more communication, less division. Right. Lord, do you have any tips? How do we we get there? I think we have to start from a place that says, I respect you and you can be different from me and I can still respect you and we can still have a difference of opinion and talking about those differences will collectively make us better. It doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with you, but if I understand your position and your concerns, maybe I think about my position differently. And that's the part of the dialogue that, Unfortunately, we're we're getting away from which I I really think um, just my personal opinion, the social isolation that we all experienced with the pandemic has really really hurt us. Right, and then also the social media and the gaming of the video games, whatever. So many things are just singular activities. As we're getting back out and about, I think I feel like everything I do, any event I go to now is more emotionally and energetically charged. I think people are just joyous to get to, you know, they didn't realize how much they missed it until they, till they get to do things. Is genomic the same thing as genetic? Yes. In the sense that it's encompassing, not just the genes, but there's another very exciting field uh, in medicine called epigenetics. Ah. Um, which we didn't cover in the book, Uh but basically it has to do with how proteins are made in your body and that the influence of your environment and your, and your parents' environment can impact how those genes are expressed. It's fascinating, Allison. I'm not an expert in it by any stretch, but it is just so amazing and incredible. We'll, we'll leave it at that, but there's, you know, again, a lot of exciting stuff happening. Very, very excited. What are biomarkers? All right. So biomarkers is a term that's used to reflect some specific test result. For example, looking at a tumor and doing a, a genetic profile of a tumor. Are there certain markers of that tumor that would respond to certain kinds of medications. A biomarker could be, you know, like the BRAC2 gene for breast cancer. So biomarkers is just a a general term for something that would indicate to your physician that you may be at higher or lower risk of of a specific condition. So much to think about. Well, this was in your book, Microsatellite High. And that sounds like a scary thing, but then she explained to me, actually, it was a good thing. And she asked me if I would consider uh, being a part of a a study because they want to figure out why some people are and why some people aren't. And if they could create possibly a vaccine to help people who aren't become my growth satellite high. Allison, thank you for bringing up the importance of clinical trials and enrolling and women being open to being enrolled in clinical trials. As a medical researcher myself, you know, I'm a full professor. Doing research is the way we advance knowledge and develop better and more effective treatments for patients. So thank you. It's really, it's really an important activity. You know, what was interesting about it, when you find out, you know, that you have some form of cancer and you've got to have a complete hysterectomy or whatever you do have to have for your cancer. That's a, like a victim. That's like a, a vulnerable place to be. And then when you think about being a part of a study, 
to help other people, that's an empowering thing. And it meant more to me to do it than I thought it would. It makes total sense. Because one of the things that I think we we lose sight of is, okay, I will take the risk that some people may not like this phraseology, but I'm going to use it anyway, mm-hmm. how spiritually nurturing it is for us to help others. Ah, yes. Okay. And nurturing our inner self or spirit or whatever the term is that you want to use is powerful. And I see that as what you experienced. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the whole journey, uh, whatever adventure, whatever you want to call it, has been a huge, you know, emotional roller coaster. But I've also learned so much, and I'm actually really excited about, you know, all the things that are happening in medicine now and coming up. Yes, there's a lot of uh, very exciting things that are happening. I mean, along the personalized medicine space, as we discussed, but also things like shared decision making and more team-based care, telemedicine. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just put a plug in for my the company that I'm with now. I'm co-founder and chief medical officer at Vori Health. And we're a virtual first medical company that focuses on orthopedic and spine conditions. And so wow. our patients have a team. So they have a doctor who's not a surgeon, which I'll, I'll make a comment on that in a minute, and a physical therapist, a health coach, and if needed, a registered dietitian for more advanced nutritional services. And the reason why uh, we created this, my co-founder is actually a, a spine neurosurgeon. So this company, two surgeons, we founded this company, Vori Health, V-O-R-I, because we recognize that patients are not getting adequate, um, high-quality, non-surgical care, and that there's too much inappropriate surgery happening. And I'm not talking about small numbers here, ladies, okay? 50% of low back surgeries have been shown to be inappropriate. 34% of total knee replacements, inappropriate. It's a very complex issue. Because hospitals and health systems make their financial margin off of surgeries, procedures, and advanced imaging like MRIs. Mm -hmm. This sounds critical, but I understand the complexity Mm -hmm. of hospitals and health systems. They treat underserved patients. They have a lot of expense. Their margins are very small. So I'm not trying to demonize them. But at the same time, they want to embrace surgeries, procedures, and advanced imaging, because that's how they make their margin and don't want to really address that a lot of patients are having inappropriate care. So we're addressing that and we're doing it through a virtual uh, first approach, meaning a telemedicine approach first, Mm -hmm. and then partner with clinics, you know, an in-person doctors and physical therapists, if that patient needs to be seen in person. That's amazing. Is something like that, I mean, I know in the long run, it's you would have such a better outcome, but is that something like a boutique doctor where it's more expensive to do? That's a great question. We, we take a lot, we're nationwide. Mm-hmm. So we see patients in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. We take a lot of insurance and there's also a very reasonable out-of-pocket if you mm-hmm. don't want to use your insurance. And I think one of the keys to the really great success that we've had clinically is the fact that we we look at patients from a much more holistic standpoint, which again is also a focus of the book. We're whole people and you have to look at all these factors that are influencing your ability to be healthy. And so we call that a biopsychosocial approach where we're looking at not just the medical condition, but also the health behaviors that are so important to help address that. And I'll just do one short example. If I took 100 people with low back pain and I did nothing but improve their sleep, I would improve their pain. Wow. Okay. Now, I know that that sounds very simple, but it's true. Right. But nobody, when you go to see the doctor because your back hurts, 
Then your primary care doctor orders the MRI. That's a couple thousand dollars. Then you get sent to the spine surgeon and the spine surgeon sees something on the MRI, which may or may not be responsible for your pain. And it's more likely that you're going to have surgery. And I'm, I'm a surgeon. Okay. So I want to give this disclaimer. My co-founder and I, Ryan Grant, he's the spine neurosurgeon. We're not anti-surgery. We know that surgery is a great treatment for the right patient. We just want it to be the right patient. Right. So our health coaches do an amazing job supporting patients with those health behaviors that are going to help them improve because we want to have the highest chance of improving them without surgery. Some people still need surgery, but they'll even be healthier and better prepared for the surgery after we support them. And so that's the fun I'm having right now. It's amazing. My father is a retired surgeon. He was a urologist, but um, he talked all the time about it frustrated him when doctors were prescribing all these tests and things that, that he knew were not necessary. But anyway, the other thing I wanted to say is maybe Lori can serve as an example for other fields, because I think this is the answer to everything, to have this all-encompassing, yes. but to have a team, to have a team that everyone's on board. Allison, of course you need a team. Uh, absolutely. And I tell people if I was redesigning the healthcare system, right? Like if I was queen of the universe and I could change it, what would I do? I would say all care is virtual first, unless it's an emergency. If you're having chest pain and you think you might be having a heart attack, you need to go to the emergency department. If you're in a car accident, you need to go to the trauma center. But for pretty much everything else, right? That you're going to traditionally go to the doctor's office to see, you can do this first through telemedicine. It is far more convenient. It's much easier. The feedback from our patients, they actually feel they get more attention from our clinicians. Because you know what? They're looking at them right there on the screen, not looking at the computer, not looking someplace else. Virtual first, and then treat Uh and approach what can be treated with telemedicine. And triage, you know, say, okay, you need to go in person for this. And that would drive value and savings and much greater convenience for patients. You know, my father used to say, well, no, other people would tell him you retired at the right time because doctors have to be in the on their computer the whole time you're trying to talk to them. They're having to take their own notes, I guess. Um, I think he just dictated something and then, you know, Catherine, his nurse would, would write it all up for him. And so these doctors are having to learn tech at the same time. And so I totally agree with you about looking one-on-one at the camera and just going through everything. I think it's a really positive thing that came out of a horrible time, you know, COVID. I'll share one other story. So before I co-founded Vori Health, I was the director of the Center for Musculoskeletal Care at Yale School of Medicine and Yale New Haven Health. And we were piloting a telemedicine physical therapy program for after hip and knee replacement. So I was going in to see one of my patients that I was going to do a knee replacement surgery on. And she was an older woman. She was in her mid eighties. And I thought as I was getting ready to go in to see her for her visit before surgery, oh, I'm not going to talk to her about the pilot with the Mm -hmm. telerehabilitation because she won't be interested in that kind of technology, you know? And then I caught myself and I thought, well, Mary, you have no idea if she's going to be interested or not. You're just projecting that she's your mother because like my mother doesn't even have a cell phone, okay? Has never been on a computer, right? So so I check my own bias because we all have bias, right? And I go to see her and I say, here, we're doing this pilot. Would you be interested? And she said, yes. So she has her surgery. She's back in to see me at her two-week post-op recheck. She's doing great. And I say, how do you like the virtual rehab? And here's what she said. I love it. I said, oh, okay, you love it. Why do you love it? Open-ended question, right? Uh-huh. She says, I love it because I don't have to get dressed. Exactly. Have, my, 
have my makeup on, have my hair done, have my house clean, put my dog in the spare bedroom for the physical therapist to come to my house to do my exercise. I can do my physical therapy on the computer with the avatar anytime I want. My daughter doesn't have to take time off from work to drive me to the physical therapist's office. I love it. Don't take it away from me. Ah, that's great. And that shows that our perception that older patients Mm -hmm. may not be so embracing of telemedicine Mm -hmm. is incorrect. Now, of course, they're they're not as used to it as as the younger generation, but there are still a lot of, I'll use use the term older, it's more senior, you have to be careful now, I'm getting into that category, right, that uh, embrace it. Right. And recognize the value in it. Once they figured out, they've got it. Because my mother did like a class every week during COVID with her physical therapist after she did one-on-one. And she once she had it set up, she did it every week. And she didn't have to go anywhere, which she's 86. So it's exactly the same thing. I was happily surprised that she was able to figure out how to, you know, to do the Zoom and everything. And then she could she could do it. So I totally agree with you. And it's very exciting. We have so many questions. So we'll have to, (laughs) let's, hopefully you'll agree to a part two. Okay. We'll have a fabulous weekend. Thank you for coming on in the show notes. We was taking notes about all the different things that you're involved with. So we will, we can include, if you want, we can include your contact information. We'll definitely include the book. That would be great. Okay, Okay, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Finds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.